0: I can guarantee that any agency owner listening is wrong about three fundamental things in their business today, and they have no idea about it.
1: Welcome to the Agency Hour Podcast, where we help web design and digital agency owners create abundance for themselves, their teams, and their communities. That might sound like a mouthful, but it really makes a difference in your life when you can truly work and live in a place of abundance. This week, we're joined by Kurt Euler. Kurt is a globally recognized marketer, operator, and speaker, joining us all the way from Atlanta, He's built and run businesses from startups, over $500 million in annual revenue, assembled teams across six continents, and in this episode, we explore servant leadership and the tactics behind keeping your team performing, why some agencies fail, and why you need to document your process or your operations will fall apart. I'm Troy Dean. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome to the Agency Hour podcast, Kurt Euler. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that I'm pronouncing your last name correct. Is that right? That's correct. There oh we where that? Where do you hail from? Where it, where's a name like Euler?
0: Well, from? it's correct for Americans, how I would say it. It's technically a Czech name, which oh. um, everybody that's worked for me in Europe makes fun of how I pronounce my own last name. <laughs> so, how
1: would the Czech pronounce it?
0: I don't have enough phlegm or the uh in my. In I my
1: uh, gotcha. Hula. Right, yeah. got it.
0: I speak American uh, and Southern. That's the only two. <laughs> <that I> <laughs> Love it.
1: Love it. Uh, now, Kurt, who are you and why are you here on the Agency Hour podcast? And how did we cross paths?
0: Well, y'all reached out. So, I mean, I'm happy to be here. I've been a serial entrepreneur and a parallel entrepreneur since I was 14. Um, Had to start two LLCs in the U.S. when I was 14. But I've I've built a whole bunch of companies. And so I've been part of more than 60 acquisitions on one side of the the aisle or another. A lot of on the buy side. I've built up a successful agency and sold it. My wife uh, built up and currently runs a successful agency. Um, But more than that, I'm typically at big companies, really growing things. And so some cases that's been providing technologies to agencies and helping them grow. Like I helped mm. HubSpot with their partner program back in the mm. uh, early, early days. Wow. Did that with another company. So I'm really good at helping agencies be successful and seeing why they fail.
1: Mm. Excellent. So that's what we're going to unpack here. Uh, uh, So you were at HubSpot in the days when they were affordable, right? Technically,
0: I I was at a company called Vitru, where we had a shared investor with HubSpot, and they were working on their partner program. And they only had a couple dozen uh, partners in it, and it wasn't driving a lot of revenue. And so (laughs) General Catalyst and Sequoia asked me to go, hey, could you go offer some advice over here? And we kind of created a new playbook that their team implemented and has become the partner program we're all used to that drives like half of their revenue.
1: Wow. What, what were the two LLCs that you started when you were 14?
0: Um, so, so one was actually in flea markets selling like swords, knives, martial arts equipment, it turned in big e-commerce company. And the other one was, what do you do when you're 14? You do lawn care and pressure washing. Pressure washing became a bolt on service, but I uh, ended up selling that business when I went to college for six figures, not a a huge deal, but enough that it was like, it paid for some really good, uh, really good couple of years. Oh, my gosh. Um, why,
1: when you're 14, why weren't you just like, you know, playing f- football or like, you know, chasing girls or something? Like, why, why, why were you thinking about business and entrepreneurship when you were 14?
0: Well, a little, a lot of two reasons. One, my dad had always been in technology. He had retired, but uh, was working on Redstone Arsenal. And he didn't, he's one of those personalities and just Dina, he didn't sleep. Like until his third round of cancer, mm. he slept about an hour and a half a night. And then he slept like a normal person. And wow. so he, he always like, he wouldn't let me sit and be bored. I had to be doing something. And so, mm-hmm. um, I was like, well, I'm mowing our giant lawn. Maybe I go some, you know, mow the neighbor's lawn. Well, that was at 13. And I had enough friends on, uh, on staff, uh, closing out, uh, cl- 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 closing out one of my 13th year. I was like, oh, dad goes, their government's going to want their piece. And then he didn't tell me much more besides I was going to have to pay taxes he basically made me figure it out myself, which was part of, I think, part of growing things and figuring out operations going forth. He told me it was a problem, told me I had to solve it, and he knew I could do it. And then he didn't say anything else. Now, I'm sure he's behind the scenes being like, okay, he's talking to an accountant. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, he, I had to figure it out. And so I had to go wow. have big boy conversations, big girl conversations when I was 14. Wow. And
1: was this like... <clears throat> When did you realize that being an entrepreneur was your, like, you know, you, do you, obviously you come out of school. I don't know if you went through college or anything. I, I dropped out of college cause it didn't kind of suit, the structure didn't suit me. And i realized that everyone that was teaching me at college was too incompetent to actually have a real career. So they just came back to college <laughs> and taught me how to do it. Uh, and I was at teacher's college, which is, you know, the, the saying is those that can do, those that can't teach and those that can't teach, teach teachers. And so I was like being taught by like the worst anyway. Um, but at some point, you, you 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 realize that solving problems and being an entrepreneur is your calling rather than like going down the traditional route of just having a corporate gig for 30 years and then getting a golden handshake.
0: Well, a little of both. I've been – for the most part, I've been in the corporate world helping big companies. And so um, – but I have this passion for uh, small businesses, entrepreneurs – Um, it's much closer to like true sales to me and true, like discipling people. So like, how do I multiply myself? Well, you have a, you have a business of five people or 15 people. Um, that's why I continue to work uh, most of the time now. What I realized, and I didn't realize it until I was probably in my late twenties was I'm really good at operating. I tend to come Mm. into marketing roles. Sometimes companies will bring me in more on the strategy side. But what I didn't realize until I go, I look back was the reason I was good at 14 was I just systematized everything. I realized that whoa, a second! I can walk down a neighborhood and sell fifty percent of the houses on there. Well, the problem then is, how do you get those lawns mowed? Well, that's mm-hmm. no different than um, after I was working on my master's <laughs> program, and websites were a thing. I mean, it was like you know, it's coming mm-hmm. up new. We were no, more, no longer doing dial-up bulletin boards, and I walked into the first financial planner in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I sold him a website for like. $2,000 or something. And there was that and that was crazy money back then. And like $150 mm. a month, like hosting and maintenance plan. And I was like, crap, that was easy. I didn't even have his website built yet. And I walked to like an estate planner across the street. And I'm like, well, I'm doing their website. Can I do yours? And I ran into the <laughs> same problem. And um, I'm like, so I, I could sell really well, but selling people that sell, maybe start agencies, but if you can't run things behind the scenes, everything just falls apart. And so- mm. When I look back, my story has always been identifying the systems that need to be in place, documenting what needs to be done, and then handing off what I can so I can go mad scientist to some other crazy part of my business. It just, it applies very well whether I, I've helped take a company public, and it applies very well for entrepreneurs that are building up an agency.
1: Mm. Well, uh, t- talk to us, Can you what, what can you tell us about uh, some of the companies that you've been involved in acquisition, either buy or sell? I think this is just interesting Yeah, purely like, like, you know, from an academic point of view, but I think it's interesting to understand what a business needs to look like and what the environment needs to look like for a successful acquisition to take place.
0: Yeah, great question. So, um, like, well, I'll start with, so many of my transactions were at this company called Navtech. It's now called Here Technologies. We all use Google Maps and something Google Maps is behind our ad targeting. Well, this company is still larger than that for maps. We took it from 85 million a year in revenue into 10 years at 1.44 billion. And so we were literally the wow. mapping data, traffic data globally, whether it's Australia, Britain, China. We had to do joint ventures there. We had cars in the road decades before Google, uh, Google had their cars. Wow. On the road. Well, that what I joined in in two thousand. Well, think about then we didn't have smartphones then, so MapQuest used our data. Rand McNally and uh, and all these uh, travel guides, they the printed maps were actually our data that they would print. And wow. so I came up almost as a management consultant with car navigation systems and MapQuest, and then back there I helped build Microsoft Flight Simulator using our data. And so I was like at the this nexus of eleven different industries. So a lot of acquisitions, a lot of investments, and I mean, that taught me a lot of things where I started to realize, like, I wrote a lot of stupid checks then because we took a company public and I had stupid money for a little while before Mm -hmm. I did stupid things. (laughs) And to your point about what does a company do look like when I acquired things, I would turn away from companies that I didn't realize I was actually investing in that if you're building an agency or a technology company, you need to build something that is repeatable and will Mm -hmm. run without you showing up. Mm -hmm. If you show if you have to show up to run the business, especially as an agency owner, Mm-hmm. You're going to get a really low multiple if you ever sell that thing. And yeah, so things 100%. have to be documented. It has to be running. And so I think the the thing for anybody is, I don't care whether you're CEO of a $50 million SaaS company or a marketing agency that has 25 employees, half of which are in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Can, do you have an operator that basically is running all of your day-to-day operations? And as soon mm-hmm. as you can, then you need to get somebody to replace you from the sales side. Doesn't mean you can't still step mm-hmm. in and do those things. But to package up anything for selling, you have to not be the driver. And it doesn't mean you have to sell, but that's also what a lifestyle business that looks like that you would want to live in for you and your family.
1: Correct. And this is a really interesting distinction, right? Because- I talk to a lot of agency owners who who I think that they say, oh, I'm never going to sell the business. And I think the reason they say that is because, one, they're young and they feel like they're going to live forever. And I just turned 50 this year and I've had friends die in their late 40s and early 50s. Yeah. And I can tell you now, I can guarantee you no one lives forever. Yeah. And at some point, you are going to have to think about how to unscramble the egg that has become your digital life and clean that up. And hand it over to your family before you die. Because if you don't, your family's going to inherit a shit show and they're going to have to kind of, you know, go through the weeds and try to figure out where the needle is in the haystack, so to speak. Uh, the other, the other thing, the other reason I think people don't think about this is because they're afraid, they don't know what's involved, right? And so they think, oh, well, that's just too big for me to get my head around. Now, what I find what's interesting is that if you can get a business running without you and you don't sell it, it's still a great asset that turns a profit. And you can go sit in the hot tub or do other things, right, or think about other projects or spend more time with your kids or don't volunteer at a charity or whatever you want to do, like have some – or, you know, invest or coach or mentor others.
0: Well, let's raise the stakes for people even that much more. Every, I agree with everything you said, especially about your family. Maybe they don't have a family yet. They're thinking about it. They haven't thought about mm-hmm. it yet. But the moment you have employees, what you should realize is whether you have a family or not – you are providing not just for your family, but mm-hmm. their families. And so mm-hmm. when when if, if you get hit by a bus, not just does your wife or husband need to figure things out, but now mm-hmm. the 20 people on your team, they have to figure something out. Because right. it's not just it's not just your family, it's their family. Mm-hmm. And that raises the game for things. And it doesn't mean that you can't be really involved. I love working. I don't need to work most of the time. I love yeah. working with people in the best, yeah. like I've mentored people, I've coached people. Which is great, but it's like, hey, somebody gives me a big check to like coach them as a CEO, CEO or CMO, and it's like, great, I talk to them for like two or three hours a month. How mm-hmm. much how much mentoring do I do on that? It's mm-hmm. very different than if I work for you or you work for me, Troy. And so, mm-hmm. like, that's why you, you want to be in a place where you can pour into people that way. And mm-hmm. then if you're really good at sales and you have somebody leading sales, then go do mad scientist sales stuff, and then go, hey, guess what? I just tripled the business. Y'all need to figure this out now, mm-hmm. and they'll love mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's,
1: it's, I think, um, the other reason that people don't, uh, I, so I think agency owners believe they're unicorns. There's no one that can do this as good as I can, right? Which is a, which we can unpack and is a complete mess. <laughs> uh, and, and really, I think what it comes down to is there are, you know, it's interesting. There's a conversation in a Facebook group that I'm a part of recently. And someone asks, you know, what's the biggest challenge that you've had over the years as an agency? owner? it's a pretty boilerplate question. Someone who's fishing for kind of pain points, but the first answer was letting go. I've been like the hardest thing someone mentioned, the hardest thing for them has been letting go of control because they feel like no one can do it as good as them. And I also think people feel useful and worthy if they're doing the thing, right? They don't feel like taking a step back and documenting and empowering the team to do the thing. They don't feel like that. Well, what am I doing? Like what's my role now? How am I relevant? Where do I fit in? Right. And so they have to shift their identity and their kind of self-worth has to shift as their role shifts.
0: Yeah. Well, things scale so much more though. When you, when, when you have the margin where other people are running those main pieces, I think too often with agency owners, we, we get into those spots because we're really good at some part of marketing or all of it. Maybe I'm really good yeah. at pay-per-click. Maybe I'm really good at design or SEO, which, okay. Like I find most, many of the people I hire, I'm better than they are at almost every role I'm hiring for. The problem is if I'm stepping in and I'm teaching them like 5% improvement, 10% improvements, like one, they're not really growing and it's so defeating for them. And then it gets, ends up getting into this micromanagement role too, where it's like, they're getting the clients the exact way I tell them to when none of us realize that they have a better idea. And if I just step back. And it would be different then. Hell, I love now, actually, when I'm able to have people running operations for me, I was running this gigantic in-house and external uh, content marketing team. We generated 5 million plus words of uh, human-written AI-enhanced content in just 18 months. And so wow. where did I get the most enjoyment? Setting the processes was great, but I had basically a factory manager that would kind of run most of that. And then I got to step in with junior writers and Instead of telling them how to improve things, I just did it with them. And so they grew so much faster. I had this woman on my team, Maddie. She's probably, I think she probably only worked with me for two years She's more seasoned at this point than some people that work for me for 10 years via my old style.
1: Now you might be listening to this thinking, well, this is great. Uh, I'm super excited about documenting my processes. I'm really keen to bring on some team members and get them to help me document the processes. And I'm, I get it. I see the value in creating SOPs and building the team, but whoa, hang on a second. I'm just completely overwhelmed. I have got a whole bunch of stuff on my desk. I need to get done. I have care plan clients screaming at me. I'm cooked. I need some help and I need some help fast. So one option for you might be just to go to E2M Solutions and partner with them to get some stuff done. So they're a white label dev agency that will do all of your care plan work for you. They'll do all of your client dev work. Uh, they'll they'll interface with your clients in your project management system. They will work Uh, for you as a white label solution. Uh, They'll also do some copywriting and some SEO for your client campaigns, e2msolutions.com slash agency dash mavericks. They are the exclusive and sole sponsor of our podcast for a bunch of reasons. I think I've mentioned in previous episodes and I'll mention again, we turned down sponsorship for years of this podcast uh, in fact, E2M are the first sponsor that we've ever accepted because there is just such an alignment of values and we love what they do. They do great work. Their communication is excellent. So if you just want to partner with someone to get some stuff done and free up some time so you can then think about how to document your processes and how to build your team and how to add more value to your business, then just go and partner with E2M Solutions. Go to e2msolutions.com agency dash mavericks. We'll put a link in the show notes and they will give you a discount off your first month. Have a conversation with them about what you're trying to do and just get uh, on board and get the ball moving so you can actually take a minute and think about what you want to do with the business over the next three to five years. The, the number one conversation I have around team with agency owners is they say, well, I'm not ready to hire someone because my processes aren't ready. So, right. you know, how do I hire a project manager if I don't have a project management process? And what I need to do right. is I'm going to document, I see this all the time. I had, I had a client once who fired seven project managers in a year, in a 12 month period, oh. right? I said, listen, I sat it down, I said, listen, what's the common denominator here? It's you. Because what you're doing is you're hiring project managers and then trying to teach them how to do things your way. And let me tell you something, you're a terrible project manager. So why don't you just hire someone who's really good at what they do, get out of their way, give them everything they need to succeed, and then let them document their process, right? Right. So why why do you think – what's the fear here? What are we afraid like? Why do we think we have to document everything before we hire someone? Why don't we just hire them and document it with them?
0: I think so often – people will say that we're perfectionists but what the reality is if you dig into that is you're scared you're scared yeah. you're actually not as good at documenting you're scared you don't have everything figured out and the moment yep. you just admit i'm a scared little 7 year old that's out in the woods by himself without a flashlight like yep. okay then we can work through that um like i'm pretty good at documenting and i say pretty good i'm really good if i take a long amount of time i hired this woman Mandy on my team mandy's superpower more than anything, just so many things wonderful. But she can watch anybody do something and just, like, document it. Like, mm-hmm. SRPs that you could hand it off to a 50-person team to just go and scale something. There'll mm-hmm. be there'll be processes interlinked to each other. Like, you bring her in your company, like, the world changes. You get hit by a mm-hmm. bus tomorrow, I mean, at that point. And mm-hmm. she does it effortlessly because she's mm-hmm. seeking to understand. And so she'll take a crack, and then she'll ask you to read it. Then in my case, I always put it off. So she forces me to read it and Mm -hmm. come back and ask me questions like, well, what about this here? And I didn't understand Mm -hmm. what you did there. That's not things that I would do as a, as a, as a agency owner. And so Mm -hmm. like a documentation should, there's two things. There's one, just the process. And then there's the handoff version and they can be Mm -hmm. different levels, but the handoff version shouldn't be like, if you weren't talking to somebody, is there a video or words Mm -hmm. that would explain everything to do? Mm-hmm. You need somebody like Mandy to walk through and do that for you.
1: Yeah. And uh, I've heard this argument a lot. For, for a good buddy of mine, Dave Jennings, is a, uh, he kind of coined the phrase systemologist, right? He's got a business called Systemology. He wrote a book called Systemology. He trains coaches in kind of systems thinking, and uh, he helps also helps small business owners sell by <coughs> basically building out their operations manual right, and adding value to their business. John Warlow has talked a lot about this on Built to Sell as well. It's a fabulous oh. podcast. He talks about... You know, every time you add a process, and SOP to your business, which can be run by more than one person in the business, so you're building redundancy, you're actually adding value to your asset. And I I, I don't have the attention span to – I've got the attention span to make a video and explain how I do something, right? Even if if it's a screen share or even if it's on a phone, I'll just turn the phone on and go, here's how I think about this and here's how I do this. I don't have the attention span to document something beautifully and interlink it and all that kind of stuff. How much detail do you think is required in process documentation? Is it to the point where you can hand it to a 17-year-old who walks in and knows nothing and can actually turnkey run it? Or is it high level enough that someone can kind of get through it, but they might have to fill in some blanks?
0: I think it depends on what it is. And so, um, you know, in the last, last two or three years, I've become one of the world's top experts in enterprise SEO, topical SEO, Corey Tuberg. Um, he's tut- tutoring me on some things like mm. he, the way Corey thinks about image rules for SEO mm. is, it's at a level that like some people think about like organic chemistry. It's like so detailed and wow. so well. Like what I, if we stay with that example, mm-hmm. I would do two different my and my image rules would be different. Like what images do I want in this content piece to help rank on help it rank on Google? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do two versions of it. I'm gonna write one set of my rules that I'm gonna force everybody in the role to read through once because mm. I can't go buy the book anywhere. And it's my version, having read like 200 Google and Bing uh, patents. This mm. is my version of why I think it works. Then there's the checklist version, which is the one mm. to two yeah. page, flip through and make sure it's got these components. I think both of those are very important. I'm probably gonna do the first or do that simple version in the video or mm-hmm. that's the law of a curve that gonna do. I'm going to have to talk talk out loud that more detailed version that I would need somebody like Mandy to write
1: that I
0: need to do because it's the repeatable bit. Like your business gets to be able to grow from that system thinking. The reason I'm great at uh, head of growth marketing, CMO for large B2B companies, it's because – I don't want to diminish people that are creatives that come up with a cool idea, but it's like, anybody can come up with a cool idea. Knowing Mm. when you add another million dollars to a pay-per-click campaign for an e-commerce company that's growing, that's a systems level thinking. That's not just like, Hey, we have a good idea. Let's go buy a Super Bowl ad. Like Mm. that's what modern marketing looks like. And so when you, when you get good at documenting all these things we're talking about, it also changes how you will approach all of the campaigns for your clients Mm. and everybody's successful
1: two two questions I have around this is this landscape that we play in changes so quickly
0: mm-hmm.
1: How do you manage your process documentation so that it's up to date and it's relevant because I, you could give me a process and I could be following it in three months time I could go Kurt, this is like this is something's changed this is out of date like it's mm-hmm. how do you how do you keep agile with your process documentation And the second part of this question is what role does AI or what role can? AI play in helping you document and manage the processes, given the fact that things are changing so quickly.
0: Well, on the second question, now that I can start talking to ChatGPT and other AIs, documentation I think is going to get a lot easier for some of mm. these things. Um, mm-hmm. Because I love doing voice notes for uh, voice notes and Loom sessions, and mm-hmm. so the moment I can start speaking into that and say format it in a way that's an SOP or give it one mm-hmm. of my SOPs, I think that's a game changer. But Mm -hmm, uh, there's parts of it with our, with what we're doing that changes very frequently. And then there's a lot of it where it's like, you can, like when you document things and you start to hand stuff off and you don't touch that anymore, creating images. I had a woman on my team out of the Philippines, never actually spoken to her on anything except for Slack, like chat. Incredible. And so I would do, uh, for enterprise SEO, here's my implementation for when my team writes these detailed articles, 5,000 word articles, here's everything you need to follow to get it into the site. And so, well, that changes a lot. I mean, there's been a lot happened in just the last two or three years, especially in enterprise SEO. Well, when do I notice it? Well, because I just hand off the implementation, now I have time in my calendar to go through and go look at the most recent article that comes out and say, what don't I like about it? And I realized it wasn't her fault because she was following the SOP I gave her nine months ago. Now, what I don't like about it is what I've learned from my mastermind session and working with other agency owners. And so I go, oh, I need to update the documentation. Like mm-hmm. assuming that she followed, but usually when I document things, my teams follow it very well, or they come back to me to tell, tell me why my process is wrong or why we should mm-hmm. do something different. I love getting that feedback, but mm-hmm. they implement things the way, because it's, it's not my process, it's then our process. So if I don't like the end result, it's the process mm-hmm. and it's my knowledge and I need to get it out of my head and realize, mm-hmm. all right, am I the one getting it of my head? Do I have a Mandy I can give it to and she can go update the, de- uh, the document? And that, mm-hmm. I think that's then what you should be doing with things change. And not everything changes. I mean, how we write content does change, but it it more depends like now is like, I can put out a website with a million words of original AI content. Is it going to rank? Well, I might go like this. That's very different than documenting how do I AI enhance stuff that I have a content team writing to make them maybe 30 to 50% better.
1: And do you, I think, you know, you're right. Like there are principles and fundamentals that largely don't change, right? And then there are things like, uh, well, we're using, you know, this tool to do this thing. Do you document that? Or do you just say, I don't know that we're getting in the weeds here, but I know people are going to ask and I'm hearing my audience go, Troy, ask Kurt about this. So do you, do you go, well, Hey, when you're in, when you're in SEM rush or Ahrefs, this is what you do. Or do you just link off to their support documentation because you know, they're probably going to keep it up to date.
0: If it's something like, especially like an HRS or an SEM rush, they're keeping it up to date. Um, that's going to be core research. I'm going to show that. Uh, I'll usually have an internal loom video that'll walk through my approach to keyword research, which is going to be different. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but I'll link off to those things as much, as much as I can. But, mm-hmm. um, but as far as specific tools, I, I mean, I'm a tool addict. I mean, mm-hmm. not just like AppSumo. I mean, I don't know how many SaaS tools I sign up for on a monthly basis and then mm-hmm. turn them back out. And so mm-hmm. I always have the core tools that the teams I'm working with, this is what you're using. And then I give them the flexibility to try new shit. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them what I'm testing. And when mm-hmm. I start to test stuff, I add it to a separate Trello board that says, hey, I think this hippo video thing is a great thing, Troy, you should test it out. And then that kind of hands it off for you to figure out what do you think before we may go change our core processes.
1: Love it. You, and I, you and I, are going to get along really well. My CEO Emily has an Asana board. Where uh, all of the stuff that I sign up for gets added, and then because I forget, and then within thirty days they, they go, "Are we still using this?" And I just go, "No, no, no, no. Yes, no, no, no. Yes, no, 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 yeah. no, no." And then they go, "Cancel all the subscriptions for me," because <laughs> otherwise, you know, I end up with this huge subscription bill of shit that I'm not using. Um, so, in terms of, uh, I want to get I want to get tactical here about our team. And I had an interesting conversation recently with someone about team who's really struggling to get their team to perform right and and like just catching stupid things that the team shouldn't be you know like a grammar check on a on a blog post that goes out and it's like you know come on this is just like basic one-on-one stuff how do you i have some theories about this particular individual but anyway I, I won't go into the details but i think they're being micro well i think from the start they they're being my the team's being micromanaged too much right and so i think what happens then is the team go well dude it was just your process i followed your process and you know you didn't, I have no autonomy here, so it's not my fault. How, and you talked in before we push record, you talked about servant leadership. And I'm a, I'm a, so I'm a huge fan of all the leadership stuff I've learned from Ramsey Solutions. They talk a lot about servant leadership. I love Jonathan Raymond's Good Authority book. I think it's the book on leadership as far as I'm concerned. Um, I also love, um, all the stuff that's come out of um, Ken Blanchard and that that whole world around servant leadership. What is the key to to, you know if you're if you're building a team and you're you're an agency owner that hasn't really had a lot of experience building a team, even if you're outsourcing, right? For, as far as I'm concerned, it's the same kind of thing. if you're outsourcing or you're building your own employees, what is the what is the key to growing a team and leading that team? to get them to make decisions as if they were the owner and to sure. basically make the same decision that you would, if you were in the room, but without micromanaging every freaking detail that comes up on a day-to-day basis.
0: There's two big P, uh, p- uh, answers I have to that question. And so one is and we'll get to it a bit, about the type of person that you hire. Most people are hiring, hiring for characteristics that are the wrong things to hire for. And the yeah. first one, yeah, is on, is on servant leadership. Um, what I find holds so many agency owners back, heck, so many CEOs of billion-dollar companies back is they may be the nicest person, but at the end of the day, there, there's there's only two types of leadership to me. There's an authoritative, which underlying it basically says, do what I say the way I say it, or there's the door mm-hmm. and your ass is fired, mm-hmm. or there's a servant leadership approach, which says, look – there's, I, I, it's my job as a leader to make sure everybody, including the janitor, understands the outcomes we're trying to accomplish, mm. how their role and what I'm asking them to do, because what I pay you is no different than what any other company would pay you. It's the same amount. hundred grand is a hundred grand. Mm-hmm. And so I need to explain to you why what I'm asking you to do is going to help the company achieve the outcomes and tell you what I, what I, you know, what I want you to do, but be open enough to the fact that I might be wrong. And so yeah. When you, I think when people approach that leadership is it's binary like that. It's either strictly authoritative or I'm here to serve you in accomplishing the company, which I may own all of it, helping you accomplish what I think the, uh, what I and we think the outcomes are. Well, that changes how I interact. It changes the fact that. I might be wrong about things as well, and you need to know that. Like, what nobody wants, and like if people push back, and they're like, "No, no, I know I'm, be- I know I'm right, and this is what I know- need to- need my team to do." I can guarantee that any agency owner listening is wrong about three fundamental things in their business today, and they have no idea about it. And I say that as somebody who is consistently, if I look back, I uncover things and realize i'm wrong we helped social media management we all schedule stuff online i was mm-hmm. at one of two companies that started that for the enterprise samsung mobile apple all user products and hootsuite was the distant number three for individual people um we we at the board level said we we need to build this like these local ag- agencies that go out and this, to meet our clients where they're at. so we hired like 25 or 30 local account managers and about six months in we looked at the data and we realized it was fundamentally the wrong decision so hmm. we, we made that decision and by, by like that Thursday, we fired almost all of them. Wow! Well, we didn't make that decision because we knew it was wrong. We thought it was right. And so when, you, when, you're, wrong, when, you're, when you're wrong and when you're right, feels exactly the same until you actually find out from the data that you're wrong. And your <laughs> team is more likely to see that with the work they do and talking to clients than you are. And yeah. if you're there to serve them, they will mm-hmm. be open enough to tell you, I don't know if you're wrong, Troy. But I think this is, I think this is not the right thing that we should be doing for this client. Or I think mm-hmm. we should, I think we should fire this client rather than before they become a difficult client. Cause we all have been mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. The second part is about how you hire too often. We hire people that are really good at what they do. You're the best designer I've seen mm-hmm. or somebody I want to go to the pub with. Mm-hmm. And I hire people that I don't care if they ever want to hang out with me personally or not. I'm going to love them when they're at work, but I want to hire people that I'm going to see certain cultural traits based on how they show up and interact. They have Mm -hmm. a bias towards action. They don't wait for me to tell them what to do when Mm -hmm. the client has an issue. They pick up the phone and call the client to find out what's going on. hundred percent. Strong opinion and go, here's what we should do, Troy. Yep. And they're open to me giving them a different idea. Yeah. And I want. and all of my job resumes say this, are you okay with healthy conflict? That yeah. scares so many people off today. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yes. I love That's this. People aren't. I've had people go, "I don't want to work because I don't know what I, I don't want I don't want to come work in a conflict place." But can you tell me what healthy conflict is? And then they write yeah. me back 6 months later cuz I still have a call with them and they go, "You changed the relationship with my wife."
1: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Cuz at the end yeah. of the day, like if you and I are out hiking and we see some mountaintop and you have a you think we should go that way and I think we should go this way, at mm-hmm. some point, like we have to make a decision and I maybe mm-hmm. I just exactly acquiesce and I go along with you. And if it turns out you're wrong, mm-hmm. how how is it not gonna feel bad, shameful for you? Like I'm gonna rub your nose in it a little bit in there. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, anything at work as well. Like mm-hmm. this is what the client needs us to do. You yeah. want to have that decision up front with your client. You want your team to have the decision up front with the client now versus yeah. nine months when your client is, is firing you because, yeah. well, y'all didn't do what I wanted you to do anyways. I knew we shouldn't have done your plan. Have yeah. that conversation up front.
1: Yeah, and that's what right.
0: you'll see in people before they – I mean, you'll see that in their interactions. Nobody ever says, hey, I'm really good at conflict and comes in and yells.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because in those moments where you're having healthy conflict, it feels – a bit, it feels a bit scary, right? And Absolutely. the reason it feels scary is because, I, in my experience, every time I've been in that, and it's it's interesting because it's only I think it's only in recent times that I've been able to articulate what that feeling is. But it's a it's a oh. feeling in my gut, right? And it's a feeling, and I feel a little bit scared because I know I'm about to put myself out on a ledge. I'm about to be vulnerable. I'm about right. to say or do something that might make other people uncomfortable and that's going to make me vulnerable right and the moment you do it there's there is that there is those fleeting seconds where you you feel like you you know a friend of mine said recently i'm like a raccoon hanging on the outside of a brick building yeah <laughs> right you have that feeling and then the second or the third person come with you they step into that space with you and then it it i feel so powerful in those moments i feel so strong And so, um, right, because people have followed the lead, people have followed the lead, right? Not the leader or the leadership. People have followed the lead and they've stepped into that space with me. And I go, great. Now we're having a real conversation. Now this is the work. We're actually doing the work now. We're not just trying to please everyone and be beige. This is where the real decisions get made in this moment of healthy conflict. Right. And- I, I agree a hundred percent. I want I've always and it's taken a long time for certain some team members, some have been, you know, quicker at it, but I've always said to my team, like, beg forgiveness, not don't ask permission. Like push back, make decisions. You never get into trouble for making the wrong decision, but you will get into trouble for not making a decision yeah. because then you make me responsible for all the decisions and I'm only one person, right?
0: Yeah. Well, and, and everything I agree with everything you said, and then the other part of that is you have to model not just the fear of bringing, stepping out when, when you don't want to have that conversation, letting people follow you. You have to bring out as publicly as you can, especially if you own the agency or you're a mm. leader at some big company, you have to bring up your failures to your team so that they're going to be mm. comfortable bringing things up to you. Yeah. Uh, I go back to about this time last year. I had a gentleman on my team, another leader, and I I probably went almost three full months past where I should have brought up a healthy uh, confrontation thing where Mm -hmm. we were just butting heads and it was eating on the inside of me and I was getting upset Mm -hmm. and it was bubbling up. Like it was spilling out of my glass, uh, you know, when we're in meetings and Mm -hmm. I finally realized it and I went to him and I did exactly what you said. And so we, we made up right then. And I, I said, look, I I've been acting this way for the last 80 to 90 days. It's my fault. You, you started it, but I handled it. I didn't handle it well. My mm-hmm. next all team meeting with thirty people, I walked through the whole I didn't walk through the private details, but I walked mm-hmm. through everything public and I said, "Look, mm-hmm. we ask you all to do healthy conflict, mm-hmm. and I failed about this. Some of mm-hmm. you have been in meetings with me with this person, and this mm-hmm. this is this was the result of me not approaching this. We've made up, but you all need to know that I didn't do this right either. I had mm-hmm. three people reach out to me with completely unrelated things going on going like, "Hey, I don't know if this is a problem yet or not, Kurt, but I need you to know this is going on in the business. Mm. Like you have to model that vulnerability mm-hmm. yeah, and step on in the fear in a way that, gosh, you like, you don't want to do that because like you watch most of the mo- most people that have basically a PR person behind them doing podcasts and writing mm-hmm. all these press pieces. And it's like, you think they're the Superman, Wonder Woman of, of all right. meetings. And it's like, that's not what your team needs. Your team needs to know you're a real person. And, that's you screw right. up, and if they screw up, you're not going to necessarily fire them for it.
1: But yeah. but you
0: want to know ahead
1: of time. Yeah. You know, this is a this is a kind of a weird story, but it's it's relevant. I last night I was putting my son to bed, he's six years old, and he's obsessed with octonauts, right? At this TV show. And uh he's building these worlds in his bedroom. He's like dragging every stool in the house into his bedroom and he's building these amazing worlds with all these octonauts toys. And uh two nights ago. I'm sitting on his bed watching him and he's like, dad, dad, you know, you got to help me do this thing. And and I'm like, well, I'm the supervisor, right? So I'm going to like (laughs) help you sort of work out what needs to happen and then you can do it. And so then last night he's like, dad, can you be the supervisor? Uh, on, and, and, you know, he, he said, you be the planner and I'll be the builder. I'm like, Oh, awesome. And so I'm kind of helping him plan it. And then he said, what do you think we should do next? I said, well, I said, Oscar, really good planners, understand that the builders are the one down on the ground building the thing and they've got a really good vision of what's going on whereas the planner sits up here and can't really see the details so I want to know what you think we should build next because you're the builder and then and then I'll kind of give you my well his eyes lit up he was like you want to know what I think you know and I was just reminded of that moment is like how easy it is to to let someone know that their opinion matters you know, and we, we had the best time watching him build things out of kitchen stools, right? But he felt so empowered and he felt this sense of autonomy that I had kind of let him do that. It was an amazing moment and it yeah, it was just a uh, uh, me I love of- he-
0: I love hearing that you know, with 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 your son, that applies with your content writers and people on your teams as well. Like mm. you can probably do most things five percent, ten percent better and improve almost anything that you see. Yeah. But it's like but, but if you step in and give that, it's deflating. Like if every time you That's were right. there being like, no, no, this needs to get moved over there. They go, yeah. oh. But if you just go, "Yeah, hey, can I, can I just do this with you next time? Yep. Then it doesn't totally. feel like teaching.
1: That's right. Exactly. So, you know, Max and I were talking the other day about um, – I was talking about this from a parenting context, but it's true in, in any of these uh, contexts that we're talking about. The, uh, the, and I can't remember where I learned this, but the two ladders – like imagine the confidence and the competence ladder that you climb both ladders at the same time and your right foot's on the competence ladder and your left foot's on the confidence ladder right or vice versa your left foot's probably on the competence no. ladder and your right foot's on the confidence ladder and our job as leaders is to because if you as you climb the competence ladder you, one of your feet gets stuck on the confidence ladder you can only climb so high on the competence ladder as the confidence ladder will allow you right and vice versa so our job as leaders is to boost our team's confidence so that they are then willing to try new things, to become more competent. And the more competent they become, the more confident they become. It's easier and faster and cheaper to boost someone's confidence and let them become more competent than it is to try and boost their competence.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because we're real people, our team members are real people, wherever they're in the world, things come up. And so mm. like they like I need to give them confidence in their work product and I need to give them confidence mm. that when things come up and their spouse gets cancer or they they get into elder care yeah. or something happens with their kid, it says, look, yeah. you you still have a job. I just we have to pay the bills. Profit does matter. But, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, I want you to I don't you know what like I had a woman on my team, major medical issues happened last year. I think she called me before she called her parents to let me know she had the stepped out of the doctor's office, this major medical thing going on because mm. she was worried about what it would look like for the company. Yeah. She ended up pivoting her role because the the rehab was going to be very different than the role that what she used to have. Mm. She ended up because she was up front with me, man, it like we completely changed like her role, she became more valuable to me than she ever was before Mm. from a work perspective. And whether Mm. or not she was at her desk at 4 p.m., I didn't care. And so that's part of being able to show up to people. And confidence comes from both the work product or 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 helping your son uh, build things or watching build things. But it also comes in saying, look, we're building something together. And yes, I need to be profitable this month, but but I'm trying to do this over the next one year, two years, three years. And Troy, you're critical to that. So when things come up, I want to know about it because I want mm. you to be productive for us over the next three years, not just the next three months.
1: Mm. Yeah, love it.
0: Um, what? Do you, what is your? So you, you, t- you mentioned
1: that you stepped out of a, a role recently. What do you like? What are you doing at the moment? What are you currently playing with, and what are you looking forward to over the next few months?
0: Uh, I'm entertaining a lot more uh, paid keynote roles. So I, I just stepped out of a three year uh, role with Exp Real. Realty, the largest uh, independent uh, real estate company in the world, which is really cool. Um, But I also meant I had turned down a ton of paid uh, speaking Mm gigs. And so I've been working with Vin Yang and some other people. And so I'm hoping to get back on that circuit. Um, But really, I'm spending a lot of time with AI right now. um, Mm -hmm. And I'm enhancing Mm -hmm. a lot of my own writing. And so I'm probably writing about five to maybe 12,000 words a day. Right now, wow. um, yeah. now I'm probably only yeah. writing four days a week, but um, I'm writing a lot right now, and I'm experimenting with different different things in different formats and seeing how I can repurpose content. So I'm kind of mad scientist scientisting stuff until I figure out what I kind of want to do next. So it it's super hard fun. for me not to be at a big established company. I'm a scaler. Yeah. I have this heart yeah. for wanting to help people, smaller businesses and agencies grow. So I always mm-hmm. find time to talk to people like you that are doing that mm-hmm. day in and day out for them. Mm-hmm. But I tend to help. Big companies become like massive companies, and mm-hmm. so I I love the dials and the knobs, and so those roles often don't happen and frequently enough for me to be interested in them. So we'll figure yeah. it out. I've got a mountain property. I'm good.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love it. Awesome, uh, Kurt Euler. It's been so good having you on the Agency Hour podcast. I'm so glad uh, that we made the connection. Uh, where can people reach out and keep in touch with you? And thank you for this. And say good day.
0: Um, my personal website, Kurt Euler, Uh, We talked a lot about servant leadership. That's actually the biggest topic that I'm writing about right now. And uh, if there's something somebody wants to ask a question about that I haven't covered, I will almost guarantee I will write an article about it or find somebody to interview about it.
1: Love it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Agency Hour podcast. Uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going. Thanks again. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Agency Hour podcast and a massive thanks to Kurt for joining us. I really enjoyed chatting with Kurt and we'll definitely have him back on the podcast in the future. Okay, folks, please don't forget to subscribe and please share this with anyone you think may need to hear it. I'm Troy Dean. And remember, don't document your processes yourself.